0: Genesis chapter four, verses one to 16. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. So
1: during Lent, we are exploring this this ancient tool of spiritual self-examination called the seven deadly sins. And it's really important to to remember as we walk through this that this is not intended to get us so obsessed about sin. Not intended for us to become sort of pathologically self-absorbed, always deeply inward-looking. The the purpose of this is, is to experience full human flourishing, the life that Jesus Christ offers to us, the fullness of that. So often we, we, we experience just paltry little experiences of that. We, we have such twisted ideas of what that life is like. And, and so this tool just helps us let go of all these ways that that life gets distorted so that we're, our hands are free to experience, to embrace all the life Jesus offers to us. And today we look at anger. We've looked at pride and lust, and today it is anger. Often when i'm walking the streets of the city, when I'm in a public place there there are times when it feels like the city is just simmering and and any little action or word could be a spark that could just light up that situation and it would boil over with anger and rage. You, you see uh, drivers that are not just impatient but, but filled with rage. You see people in lineups and their scowling faces look like there's a fuse on them; and they'll go off anytime and, and people use words in public that, that they lob them like grenades Or or I look at social media or political conversation. and, And it's almost like people are just ready to rage. You know that most media outlets now have shut down online comments? Because the vitriol, the hatred that was expressed was just overwhelming. And so they just had to shut it down. Why are we so angry? so ready to rage what is it about us and yet at the same time we need to affirm there's something good about anger too there's something very good God gets angry scripture talks about this quality of anger about God and and, and it speaks about it in a good way in a good fashion Now, that's often misunderstood. A lot of people misunderstand God's anger as this sort of temperamental wrath, this capriciousness. And it's not that. Because interesting, do a study for yourself. Every time you read about God's anger, um, there is an accompanying theme, almost a repeated mantra, just pounding it in. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. He's slow, he's angry, but he's slow, there's a long fuse, and God's anger, God's slow anger is focused, it is always aimed at justice, injustice, and it always moved by love, those two things, anger, when it's moved, aimed at justice and moved by love, that's that's good anger, God demonstrates that, we see anger in Jesus too. Jesus. Remember that time when Jesus is in a synagogue and, and there's a man who's got a withered hand. It's all bent, deformed. And, and all the religious authorities, all the who's who in the religious groups are looking at Jesus, just waiting. What's he going to do? And Jesus says, is it lawful for me to heal a man on the Sabbath? And there's silence. And it, it, scripture says Jesus looked with anger at them. He was angry at At the lack of love of these people for this man with this withered hand. He was angered by by this sense that they were more concerned about being justified by their rule keeping. Than about the restoration of God's kingdom in this man's life. So anger is good. There's a good side to it. In fact scripture says be angry but don't sin. So yes be angry. It is a healthy emotion, and it is this personal energy that, that riles us towards good action in its best case, doesn't it? When, when you see anger, you, what you often see is great love in action. Because when you're angry, there's, a, there's this root of love, like a mother will protect their child because they care deeply for that child. And if that child is threatened, oh, mama bear comes out, right? Anger as best cases, is is moved and, and, and rooted in love. Good anger, focused on justice, focused on what's wrong in this world, but moved by love. And so scripture says, be angry, but do not sin. It's interesting, you can't say that about any of the other deadly sins, can you? Be lustful and don't sin. It doesn't work. Be envious, be greedy, be gluttonous and do not sin. It doesn't work, but anger does. Be angry but do not sin. So, anger is good, and yet we've seen its destructive power. How does that work? That's why that scripture verse is actually a word of caution. Be angry, but do not sin. It it says, watch out. Anger is good. You can express it, but watch out because it is dangerous, and it will turn into something destructive and evil without you even noting it. So be careful. So how does that work? How does a virtue, the anger, good anger, turn into a vice? That's where the scripture passage we read today is so helpful for us. This passage is the first murder story. This biblical teacher, uh, uh, this biblical story is, is subtle. It's brilliant. It's this crime story that gets repeated again and again throughout human history. And right at the beginning of the Bible, the very first passage where the word sin is mentioned, this story of Cain and Abel, it's a story of anger at work. The crime is murder. The emotional engine behind it is anger. Cain and Abel bring to God their offering. They're in church. They're at worship. And they're, both of them are responding to God. So both of these people are, are faith-filled men. And they're offering God their worship. But something went wrong with Cain's worship. Something went wrong with what Cain had to offer. And Cain and God doesn't accept that. And Cain gets angry. Not humble, mind you. Angry. He gets angry against God for being such a finicky eater. Why won't God touch his vegetables that Cain has offered? And in such a quiet, subtle way, Cain's anger turns. It turns from God to the closest person to him, his brother Abel. Cain turns and his anger shifts toward Abel and he looks at Abel no longer as a brother, but as an enemy. He sees a barrier to his honor, to his happiness. Not someone to love, to lift up, to serve, but someone to cut down to size. Who does Abel think he is anyways? Where does he get off offering this? And Cain goes out to kill his enemy, his brother. The story is so helpful because it parses for us the different forms that we often experience. This anger that kills and maims and harms. That becomes a deadly vice. One of the things um, that we see is it begins with this contrary mood. Almost a readiness to be angry. It's like Cain here is, is prepped and ready to take offense. There's a quick-temperedness about him. This is one of the ways anger goes wrong when it is too easily angered, too quick-tempered. It's irritability that, that poisons our mood. where We're ready to respond at the, just the slightest provocation, the slightest annoyance. We feel quarrelsome. We feel contrary. That prevailing Mood is a ground for full-blown anger to grow up in. And we see how Cain's heart turned that way, turned resentful, the downcast face. It's this image of this smoldering bitterness, which is the anger in the heart. It's not yet expressed in word, in action. It's just smoldering underground. Ang- anger becomes a vice when it's too quickly angered, when it's, when it's disproportionate to the offense Here's the thing, we can be angry about a just cause and still get it all wrong because the way we express anger is in all the wrong ways. We express it in dangerous and destructive ways. If someone slights you, it's okay to be angry, for sure. But to blow up a minor offense, to to stew for weeks over this offense, to replay the slight in your mind and the delight you're gonna have at payback, Something's wrong there. There's an interesting myth about anger that gets played out in a lot of counseling sessions and and conventional wisdom. The popular practice among many people is that unexpressed anger that gets stored up inside is unhealthy. And if you don't express it one day, you are just going to blow up. You are going to pour out your wrath and anger. So the wisdom is get it off your chest blow off your steam, you know. Um, Let it all out. Express your anger. Now, here's a couple of interesting things about that. Uh, One is, we don't treat other emotions that way. You never say, you got to let your gratitude out, man. Otherwise, you are just going to blow up, okay? You know, life has been such a gift to you, so many people have poured into your life. If you have not verbalizing that thankfulness, man, you are a walking time bomb of gratitude. Look out, because you're going to blow. No, we don't do that with other emotions. And another thing is, ventilating our anger, it turns out, is actually the worst thing to do. One review I read of, of a dozen psychological studies found that both the observation of and the participation in aggressive behavior leads to more anger and more aggression, not less. Isn't that what we experience so often? When, when someone rages or you experience some aggression, what does it do inside you? It fuels in as more aggression. I was recently dropping my kids off at school. And uh, I was at a stoplight, was going to turn right into traffic and looked and saw, you know, maybe incorrectly, but I felt like I had enough room to slip into traffic before the uh, oncoming truck would come. So I made the turn and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I got a truck right on my backside just blasting the horn at me. And before I knew it, this guy pulled up beside me in the lane, window rolled down, um, just yelling, whatever. And my window was shut. It was winter. I couldn't hear him. But he, you could see from his face, he was in a rage. Now, what do you think is going on inside of me? You know, at the stoplight that we pulled up ahead, i he was turning right. I pulled up beside him. And am I rolling down my window and responding like, well, thank you, sir. Point well taken. You know, you, you've touched me deeply. You've taught me. I'm going to change my ways. I especially want to thank you for that hand gesture. That was very helpful too. Right? No. Come on. I want to take this guy on. I want to take him down actually. I'm driving a little VW and he's got a big pickup. I'm not going to do that with my car. But there's something inside of me that is just raging. The research on this is so conclusive. Letting anger fly just creates more. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children. Because here's the thing you can provoke it. When you humiliate, when you belittle someone, when you treat them contemptuously, you provoke anger. And excessive anger does this as well, it's provocative. And it's not just individuals that experience that. It's whole peoples, whole races, whole groups. When they feel belittled, when when they've experienced your anger, your rage, you sow seeds of further anger and further rage. You see this all over our world. Whole groups who are just uprising against what they've experienced as belittling. Now, you you might have some problems with that anger, and, and there may be some problems, some forms of it. But the one who provokes that anger is in the worst. So how we express anger turns anger quickly into a vice. But also when we get angry about the wrong things, when anger has the wrong cause, the wrong object for it. So often with anger, the agenda is me and my honor. If you're slighted this week, Here's my guess. If you're slighted, if someone offends you, insults you, you're going to burn and you're going to brood and you're going to be bothered longer than if you read somewhere that in Syria people are being mistreated and suffering terrible injustice. That's just the way it's going to happen because anger is often about me. Our anger is because we're not appreciated. We're offended. People like to talk about righteous anger, prophetic anger. And there can be forms of that, but mostly... Mostly it's a cover for self-righteousness. Anger is deeply committed to, connected to our love of ourself. Anger takes things personally. Like Cain here in this story. He's angry because he feels personally injured and insulted. Now maybe you might think, well, isn't there some grounds? Doesn't Cain Cain have some ground to stand on here? Why Why was his sacrifice not accepted by God? And Interesting, there's a specific word used for the sacrifice that Cain and Abel offered. Um, The Hebrew word for the sacrifice means a dedication offering. It wasn't an offering to ask God for forgiveness. So they're not coming to God saying, God, I really blew it. Please forgive me. It is to make a dedication. God, I offer you my whole life. Here it is. And so you take something that belongs to you and you give it to God as a symbol of your whole self. So Cain was a farmer. And he brought farming produce. Abel was a shepherd and he brought sheep. So it's not in the form. It's not in what they're giving God that was the problem. We learn what the problem was in another part of the Bible. 1 John 3 where it says Abel's deeds were holy and Cain's were not. It was the deeds behind the offering. And we catch sight of that in this text too where it says Cain's offering. Cain brought some of his produce. Abel brought the first, the best. In this dedication offering, which is a symbol of your whole life, Cain is half-hearted. He just offers some of it casually. And Abel offers it all. It's sort of connected to our worship. You know, if you give your prayers and your money and your offering, but it's not backed up with your life. It's not love. It's not worship. It's like bribery. It's God. It's you saying to God, God, I'll do these religious things. I'll go through all the religious motions, but don't you touch the rest of my life. That's mine. It's half-hearted. So Cain is incensed because God won't accept his half-hearted offering. And in the context of worship, Cain becomes furious. And his anger turns to Abel and he kills his brother. But he's angry with God. Ultimately, all misplaced wrong anger is aimed at God. Isn't that how our anger often goes? We find an intermediary for what we're really angry about. You come home and you blast out your anger at the kids or your spouse or your roommate when really you're angry about something else. More than likely, you're raising your fist at God because you can't control this world. You're furious at God for not running the world the way you would. It's a, it's a demandingness. It's a sense that God owes you and feels like, like you have a right to your anger then. We're impatient that things aren't put right immediately the way we want. And ironically, we, feel, we lose our emotion. We lose control of our emotions. Why? To, to gain control somehow. Ultimately, our anger is at God and ultimately it's a heart issue. And you see this here in the text. God comes to sullen, brooding Cain. And, and God is so tender when he comes to Cain. It's amazing. God doesn't come to Cain saying, How dare you question whether I accept yours or Abel's? God might do that, you think, right? But he doesn't. He comes instead asking gentle questions Why are you angry? Why, why is your face so downcast? Now, I guarantee you, God is not looking for information here, he knows. God is doing, he's functioning like a a wise counselor. This is what good counselors do. They ask questions. And what they do through those questions is they help us to look at ourselves and help us to get underneath what the presenting issues are. God is helping Cain look into his heart to see what's underneath, to see what are the motives that are really working in his heart. And this is so important because anger has such a powerful blinding effect on us. Which is another reason why anger is probably one of the trickiest of these vices. God says to Cain, Sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you. Now, think of that image of a crouching animal, that picture, waiting to pounce. Crouching is both an image of stealth and deadliness. Animals hunting prey, they do it in crouching positions, they make themselves look smaller. They're not as apparent and maybe not as fearful, but they're poised to strike because people don't see the danger. The worst sins in your life look way smaller than they really are. The average person today, I hear this all the time, you probably do too. Maybe we even say it ourselves, you know, I'm basically a pretty good person. Sure, there, there's some evil people in this world, I realize that. But basically, aren't all people pretty good? If, if that's how you think, you you got to know sin is crouching at your door. You can't see it, but it is there and it will have you. Your sins crouch. Anger crouches. Every grudge you keep is a crouching weapon of murder. All coiled up, you're not noticing, but just waiting to pounce. Every hostile word is actually a knife that you don't see. Every unforgiveness is a bitter heart that's just hiding, coiled up, waiting. Every word of gossip is like a shotgun in your mouth. Every insult is murder crouching down. Sin comes to you and says, you know, don't worry. I'm just going to stay here in the corner. Don't take notice of me. It's always just trying to stay off your radar. Always presenting itself as something else. And yet one day, it springs. And that's not just sly, not just hidden, but it's deadly. God says that there's a deadly power. It seeks to have you. It's an image. That image should just arrest us, grab our attention. Sin is not just something you do. It's a power. Here's what God's saying. He's saying it it starts small, but before long, it starts taking you out. There there is something about sin. There is this power. It's not just a bad choice. It does you. It's a choice that then takes over. And it will have you. Sin will do you. If you're a man who... Maybe you're hurt in a relationship, a romantic relationship, and maybe you maintain a grudge against that woman. It's going to generalize. It's going to affect your view of every woman. It will harden and it will distort and you will not be able to assess people well. Well, If you have a grudge against someone of another race, whether it was an experience that was difficult or uncomfortable, whatever it is, you're going to generalize and you're going to begin to think ill of a whole race, not just one person. You can decide in your heart, you know what? Mom and dad hurt me. I'm going to remain bitter. I'm going to hold this grudge against them. But it won't be long before that thing uncoils and springs on you. It will poison you and it will harden you. It will embitter you in ways that you couldn't even see or imagine. That is just how sin works. It seeks to have you. You know, there's nobody more under the the power of something than someone who is blind to it. Do you know your crouching sins? Or maybe you think, yeah, he's just exaggerating. If you do, you're so vulnerable. This is why Christians talk about both big sins, global injustices, which we need to address, and small-scale sins, like a lie, like unforgiveness, like lust, because God knows that the small stuff eventually leads to the big stuff, if you just give it enough time. So that's why we are talking about this, so that we can just quit this sin, so that we can run from it, so that we can find hope and healing in Jesus So what hope is there for us from this anger? We could talk a lot about ways to manage your anger. And I got to tell you, those are not trite things. Those are important things. You know, count to ten. Take a walk. Scripture constantly, you read Proverbs when it talks about anger. It is all about cultivating patience, which is this God quality, being slow to anger. It is trying to be like God. Patience, it's a good thing. But if we said already, ultimately anger is a heart issue, then ultimately what we need is a change of heart. Remember how God tenderly comes to Cain and he asks questions? God has given us his Holy Spirit within the counselor who functions just like God did with Cain. And allow the Holy Spirit to ask your spirit questions. Why are you so angry? Why is this bothering you so deeply? Why can't you forgive? What are you trying to control in this situation? Can you humble yourself and trust in my control? Will you yield yourself to me, trusting that I have your full flourishing in mind? Will you make room for my anger instead of yours? Will you trust that my justice will prevail and so that you don't need to take yours out? Listen for the questions the spirit just might surface in your heart and speak to you. That might help you get to the real reasons underneath for your anger. But then we also need to learn to do something with our anger. We need to crucify it. We need to put it to death. To get rid of it. Often what we do instead is we collect our anger, don't we? We keep books. We keep memories of all the offenses. We nurse it. We cultivate our anger. Some people just don't want to give up anger part of them. But here's the thing. If we can collect our anger, we can let it go. We can give it up. We can get rid of it. And we do that by crucifying it. We need to bring it to the cross of Jesus Christ because the cross is the sign that God wants to save you, me, the sinners, and destroy the sin in us. So we have to crucify it. And it's in the cross where we find out how that happens. It's a remarkable thing. In Hebrews 12, verse 24, it says this. We come to Jesus Christ, the mediator, and to the shed blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. You know what that means? What does the blood of Abel do? Well, we read in this passage that the blood of Abel cries out. It cries out for justice. It says an offense has happened and justice must be done. Every blood, human blood that's shed, cries that same cry. Abel's blood cries for justice, and so does Jesus' blood. But Jesus' blood cries out in a different way than any other blood. Jesus' blood, because he died for us and because he was perfect, because he was our substitute, Jesus' blood cries out to the Father. And the shed blood of Jesus on the cross cries out, Father, sin must be paid. And I have paid for their sins. For those who believe in me. All other blood cries out and says in the name of justice. Reject them. Condemn them. Jesus is the only blood that cries out in the name of justice. Save them. Embrace them. Love them. Because I have paid for them. Because human beings are so valuable because this created world is so good. God will not just pass over sin. And so when we sin, we destroy relationships and people and reputations. We wreck things. And all of that cries out to God for justice. But when we repent, Jesus takes the Father to His blood, which cries out to God grace and mercy and salvation. And through Christ... God's justice can now be for you. Do you see that? Friends of Jesus, that is the good news. There are deadly sins crouching at our door. They want to devour us, no doubt. Some of you are being chewed up right now. And you don't realize that's the reason why you're so miserable. But the good news is there is hope in the cross. Because you can be forgiven, you can be freed, and through Christ you can master it. In his name, let's pray. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we ask that you help us to see that if you were so gentle to come to Cain, when he's so deeply in sin, when you treat him so gently, he's just murdered, how, how much more gently will you treat us if we come to you in repentance? When we come to you with an open heart, willingly saying, "God, I'm a sinner, I need help."
0: You were so kind, God, even
1: the Cain as he emerged.